Our jumping off point today uh, is FDR's State of the Union address on January 11th, 1944. With the war winding down and the Allies closing in on victory, FDR turned to the question of where to go from here. What type of country could we be? How could we go about ensuring everyone, regardless of race, gender, religion, or station, has the essentials for a secure life? After some specific policies relative to the war effort, the economy, and the voting rights of soldiers and sailors overseas, FBR, FDR begins to describe his vision of the foundation for security and peace at home. It is our duty now to begin to lay the plans and determine the strategy for winning of, the, of a lasting peace and the establishment of an American standard of living higher than ever known before. We cannot be content, no matter how high that gender, general standard of living may be, if some fraction of our people, whether it be one-third or one-fifth or one-tenth, is ill-fed, ill-clothed, ill-housed, and insecure. This republic had its beginnings and grew to its present strength under the protection of certain inalienable political rights, among them the right of free speech, free press, free worship, trial by jury, freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. There were our rights to life and liberty. As our nation has grown in size and stature, however, as our industrial economy expanded, these political rights proved inadequate to assure us equality in the pursuit of happiness. We have come to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Necessitous men are not free men. People who are hungry and out of a job are the stuff of which dictatorships are made. In our day, these economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. We have accepted, so to speak, a second Bill of Rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station, race, or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative <coughs> job in the industries and shops and farms and mines of the nation, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home and abroad. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment, the right to a good education. All these rights spell security, and after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. America's own rightful place in the world depends in large part upon how fully these and similar rights have been carried out into practice for our citizens. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. Comrades and friends, hello from the Highlands Bunker studio. Uh, Carl has patched in from a secure remote location. Uh, they were trying to scramble our signal today. They did not want us to talk about this. We've had, uh, we've had many a technical uh, issue. Uh, but now uh, we are coming through loud and clear. Um, joining me uh, today are old friends, uh, historian and professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, Harvey J.K., who together with Alan Minsky, the executive director of Progressive Democrats, of America wrote an article in Common Dreams called A Call for All Progressive Candidates and Office Holders to Embrace a 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights. Uh, Harvey, how are you? I'm doing great. And as I said uh, before we got going, I can sense that spring is not too far away. Yes, Green Bay. If, when, when Green Bay gets spring, we know we have spring. Well, I may be overly optimistic about how we may not go. We may not turn green in Green Bay until some point in April, but we're going to get 60 degrees this week on Wednesday. Nice. Um, also joining us is a progressive candidate for House Seat 23 in Dover, community activist and organizer, our friend Carrie Evelyn Harris. Carrie, how are you? Just, I'm wonderful. Thank you for what having me. I, 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 I said 32, didn't I? 
Did I miss? Did I miss? Did I miss no, District you said 23. U? Twenty-three. Oh, look at that! I just, I just Thank you, thank you. Well, Dover Zone, Dover Zone. Um, that's that's electoral stuff. I don't know that inside stuff. Um, <coughs> I also wanted to congratulate you because it's it's hey, it's the on, first. Let me just get one thing clear. You, that was the district you're running in, right? Correct. Thirty-two. Yeah. Yes. For a small state, that's a goodly number. Yes, well, we have forty-one. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> Got it. I w- I didn't mean to pick. I mean, I came from a small state of New Jersey I, originally, so I I just thought it was it was a number that I didn't expect to hear. But that's great. <laughs> uh, and I, I also wanted to congratulate Carrie. Uh, just recently, she was elected to the DNC Executive Committee. Uh, I know you were our state's committee representative. Um, so congratulations. And also, can you tell me what that is? Because I I'm not sure. Yeah, so more, most specifically, um, I uh, won the, my race to become the disability caucus chair. I'm a disabled veteran, um, and it used to be a disability council, and it has transitioned to being a caucus, uh, which makes it an official voice of, uh, within the Democratic National Committee. And as a chairperson of a caucus, you are then on the executive uh, committee. So that will make it so that uh, folks with disabilities have a voice that resounds. Uh, and disabilities, as, as you know of me, Rob, um, I, I believe in the intersectionality of all of our struggles. And unfortunately, disability uh, is something that touches the majority of us. One in four folks uh, live with a disability, one in two women as you age, you are more and more likely to develop a disability. If you join the military, uh, more likely to have a disability. Um, if you live in, in, in frontline, fenceline communities around environmental justice hazards, disabilities. So it is, it is important and will touch everything from housing, healthcare, education, and beyond. And so I'm very excited to be able to chair this caucus, uh, bring the voices of those who are often not heard to the um, executive committee and figure out how to bring the intersectionality of all of our struggles front and center for um, the common person that often is not heard at that level of um, party. Yeah, I want to get, we're going to get to that too, because I know there was stuff that we talked about at the call event that I think is applicable. Um, You know, all of the sort of the, the interweaving of all of our struggles and trying to organize that way. But um, Harvey, first of all, I'd like you in your, you know, and, and I know you have a good answer for this, to sort of define progressive. People throw it around all the time, um, and we do throw words around all the time. That's why I try to maybe use words that are a little bit uh, harsher. I'll just call myself a leftist or a socialist or something. Um, but how would you define um, what a progressive is? And, and I don't want you to have to speak for Alan, but sort of what the organization itself is trying to, is trying to do, the work they're trying to do. Okay. Well, please understand that I'm not even on the advisory board right yet of the Progressive Democrats of America. So I'm not going to speak specifically of PDA, though they are decidedly, as I'll soon explain in my, as I understand it, progressive group. Can I give a little historical spin to this? Because I'm old enough to know how these words have taken meaning. So the word progressive actually, you know, goes back to the early 20th century with a capital P. And it had to do with folks of not only the Democratic Party. In fact, a lot of the progressives originally came out of the Republican Party because they were so fed up with the corruption in the Republican Party. But the idea was that the big corporate or industrial titans, the capitalists of the late 19th century, the Gilded Age, definitely were overwhelming. And, and this was also FDR's argument, were overwhelming democracy and the possibility of democracy. Now, let's not forget, we're not talking about a democracy that even then included African-Americans in the South, or for that matter, the majority of white rural workers either, because let's get it clear, literacy requirements, poll taxes, etc., that left out not only African-Americans, that left out poor whites, decidedly, as well. But the idea was that America was a democracy in the making, but that in the course of the 19th century, industrial bosses, corporate bosses, the millionaires, today we call them billionaires, had literally accumulated so much wealth and power that they needed to be brought down in some ways. They needed to be taxed and regulated. That's what progressivism had to do. It had to do with 
democracy with a small d. Now, in that sense, it really wasn't very much different at the time than the socialist view of things, which was that there was too much concentration of power and wealth in the hands of the corporate titans. So socialists themselves, really, if you go back and look, as much as we associate that time and the arguments of socialists with state ownership, had far more to do with the, some kind of democratic control over the economy. Now, FDR in the 30s gave a whole new spin to what we would think of as liberalism, because before the 1930s, liberalism was, you know, sort of rooted in the 18th century of liberation from feudalism and aristocracy and monarchy and all that. And, it, and generally, it favored the idea of freedom in every dimension of life, which included freedom in the marketplace. What FDR did is he took progressivism and looking over towards the European idea of liberalism that was changing in Britain, and also social democracy, which was a, 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 the, actually the word that most socialists regularly used, he created an American liberalism. which that, And that liberalism is essentially what we think of today as progressivism, small p. But I also want to say that if, if, if I had my way in any of this, we would all be using the term social democracy. Because I really do think that what that what Bernie was about, and though she herself left a lot to be desired regarding her relationship to Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, okay, I mean, they were, I, I think that if we think of progressivism, it means extending the power of the people, small d democracy, into every corner of American life, at least on an experimental basis. That democracy is itself the grand experiment. So progressivism may well include a whole host of social and cultural and economic issues. But today, progressivism means basically to advance democracy, to make America freer, more equal, and more democratic, and in the process, more prosperous. That's my sort of long-winded explanation of the term, which I never actually you know, I did define. But if you ask me, a real yeah. progressive is a social democrat who believes very much in the freedoms of the Bill of Rights and in the creation of a new second Bill of Rights, an economic Bill of Rights. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that it's a process. Uh, you know, the, the, the Peace and Common Dreams takes it from, you know, the, the laying out of those economic Bill of Rights in the, in the FDR State of the Union through A. Philip Randolph, through King, uh, you know, to Bernie, really, and, and Dougherty and, and, and Hamilton. So it's it's sort of like the idea of fulfilling a promise, but it, you know, but it being a process, not a moment in, in time. Yeah, and I'll just say, there's something that we didn't mention in the in our little article, our call for all progressives to embrace an economic bill of rights, but it's something that I wrote about in, in my book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, to show the degree to which the four freedoms and economic bill of rights remained at the heart of the truly like progressive or social democratic Democrats of the post-war period. In 1960, the Democratic Party platform, which was authored by a man named Chester Bowles, and Bowles was a, a leading figure in the FDR administration. I believe he headed up the, um, the, the sort of wages and price administration during the war and immediately after the war. And when he wrote the platform, he had traveled around the country feeling out what Democrats wanted. And by the way, he even said in his own memoirs that when he got to the South, that he faced little opposition to a lot of the arguments he was making because the white supremacists knew their time was running out. They put up a hell of a fight, but that, that's what he, he sensed. In any case, he outlined an economic bill of rights, or better said, he outlined a Democratic Party platform based on FDR's four freedoms, Thomas Paine and Jefferson's Rights of Man, but most especially the Economic Bill of Rights. He actually refers to it as the Economic Bill of Rights that shapes it, and he then goes point by point from FDR's Economic Bill of Rights to lay out the party platform. So what's, what's amazing to me is that when you mention an Economic Bill of Rights to people, First, you have to tell them that FDR was the one who first proposed it. And he actually first began to propose it, not in 1944, but back in 1932. But the other thing you have to remind people, because it, it, it makes it a less alien thing to them, is that 
The Democratic Party was committed to pursuing the Economic Bill of Rights in 1960. And then in the mid-60s, empowered by that Democratic platform, A. Philip Randolph, who was himself a socialist and great labor and civil rights leader, he had he offered a freedom budget. Now, our audience, because we're a podcast, not a YouTube show, may not realize, but I'm going to show and tell you two. This is the original freedom budget of A. Philip that A. Philip Randolph put together in 1965. And I want to make it clear, and I won't I won't open it up to show you all the signatures. You have to trust me about the signatures. There were 150 plus endorsements from labor leaders, civil rights leaders, academic leaders, foundation leaders, you name it, 150 endorsements. It actually looked like it was going to be like reignite LBJ's determination for the creation of a great society and a war on poverty. And it was to out, and he actually said this was a 10-year plan to wipe out poverty. And then it's a tragic tale in this sense, a tragic story, but not long before his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. himself called for an economic bill of rights for all Americans. We didn't hear about it really again until it was Bernie's campaign. And unfortunately, as as much as I adore Bernie, he had it on his website, but he never brought it onto television with him. He never challenged the other primary contenders on in those terms. So it's time for our generation, and I use that in the broadest sense, running from you younger folks up to my age of, of 72. It's our time, okay, to fulfill the promise of my parents' generation that fought hard in 1944, not just in the war, but fought hard to get FDR reelected. And I can tell you more about that if you wish, but we can move on. I don't want to hog the mic. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I, like I said, I, I, the way that you put it is so important to, for people to remember because it's important for me to remember. Um, fulfilling the promise takes time. You don't just, you know, you can't just do it one time. You have to keep pushing. The ideas have been there, and you have to remind people of where they come from uh, and how they can be applied, for sure. Um, but I do want to ask Carrie... Um, the question about her framing of this, because I don't know if it was when we first met, but certainly, you know, since day one of your your first campaign, you've always framed it that everybody, everyone's struggles are connected. And that was the way that you could get people to listen to you when you were sort of explaining these these rights that we can go and get for people and give them a secure life. Um but it's, uh, you know, I, I just like you to speak on that a little bit about your your sort of organizing philosophy and your idea um, behind how you um, advocate and do activism for this stuff. Yeah. So, um, you know, Delaware is the small state. And so I often say six degrees of separation quickly turns to two or three. Um, and and so we have to think about what that means. When we talk about um, political divides, Republican versus Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, whatever, um, that, that's not really the case when you're living next door to someone, that's your neighbor, or you're sitting down at dinner with your aunt, uncle, sister, brother, right? Um, at that point, your pa- party ideology kind of steps to the side, right? And so how what is it that connects us? It, what connects us is the idea that grandma and grandpa can't pay for their medication and we're trying to figure out how to help them. What connects us is the fact that we share a, uh, a niece or nephew who has some type of developmental delay. What connects us is the fact that we are a middle-income family and we are making too much money to get assistance for college and make too little to afford it so we have to take out student loans. What connects us is the fact that um, every single month we're trying to figure out if we have enough money to meet up around the holidays for a a family gathering again because our budgets are stretched that thin regardless of if we are the member of a family working at a fast food location or at a bank or we're teachers, we're all in the same boat. Four out of five of us can't make our paychecks stretch far enough. So what connects us are our struggles, right? Um, 
what often divides us are our, how we identify in, in party politics, right? And so if we stick and we stay focused on our, our struggles, but in a positive way, okay, we know this is what is hurting us. How do we attack it? How do we solve for this problem? Um, that is going to be what moves us forward as a people. And, and, and so I try to really do that, really focus on the, sh- the positive aspect of the struggle, because there is always a silver lining. And ultimately, that silver lining is the, the humanity of the struggle. Yeah. I mean, I always, uh, anytime I, I speak with Carrie, I always get her to sort of articulate that idea because I, I like hearing it myself um, and being reminded of it. And because I, you're such a hard hearted guy, you need to hear this stuff. Well, you know, let's. <laughs> yeah, Carrie can probably tell you she's had to sit me down a few times. So let's let's be honest. Um, but even going further, you know, you have to sort of deal with your neighbor, uh, as you said. And and the the thing about that concept is it also allows you to deal with people maybe you didn't think were your neighbors, but really are. Um, you know, we live in a small city. We live in a small state. We're actually right on top of each other all the time. But it's still extremely parochial. Um, it's still like I live in this neighborhood, or I live on this side of the highway, or I live, you know, in this neighborhood, uh, you know, in the suburbs rather than that neighborhood in the suburbs. And you know, you would expect a little bit of that if you were bigger, but we're we're already on top of each other. And so we still need we still need this idea that yes, it doesn't matter really where you live. You you have loans that you felt like you had to pay, and now you're struggling. You're not getting paid as much as you used to. Your job security is not great. Uh, you know, the, the, it, all of that stuff transcends um, location, uh, transcends uh, race, creed, you know, all of the things that FDR said. So, I mean, that, that's why I think that idea is absolutely integral. Well, Professor Kay, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in what you think about our current moment. And how we can, how we can take the lesson of, of of all of this and inject it into even more progressive social democratic political candidates, but also just create a real movement. Because when I read your books or I read History of the Time, um, and you mentioned it earlier, FDR was elected to that for, a fourth term. You can't. You have to have a message. You have people. You have to have a mass movement of people, whether it be with with labor and the war effort, everything, to be able to accomplish something like that. So it's definitely a part of it. Um, what is your, what's your take and strategy in our current environment for these progressive candidates, Kerry being one? Well, as long as you as long as you gave me FDR to start with, that's great. Okay. And the reason I say that is this. Look, first of all, he made some he, he made some terrible decision decisions, tragic mistakes. I'm not, I will never turn him into a saint. But like Lincoln, he was one of our two greatest presidents. And Americans' lives, not everyone's lives, but Americans' lives were dramatically transformed for the better. So let's get that clear. One of the, and I think one of the really remarkable, really extraordinary things about FDR is that he, in spite of the fact he came from a wealthy, elite background, he had a sense that the kinds of things that mattered to him mattered to most Americans. And that when he would do a fireside chat, those, fa- those famous fireside chats that he gave throughout his presidency, that when he was speaking to those folks in their living rooms by way of the radio, that it was as if what he was thinking, he knew was probably on their minds as well. And that included a sense of what the American promise was meant to be, even if it had not been realized and would take quite a struggle to realize it. And I'll also tell you that the way he articulated that was he always spoke of the American promise in terms of the history. In fact, the, 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 the tragedy about our memory of FDR is that conservatives have hated him and try to utterly misrepresent him. And liberals have generally narrowed the radicalism that he articulated. Okay. And the fact is, if you go back, 
and look at what he had to say and look at the initiatives that he promoted and look at the way in which he not only operated as president, so you might imagine it was the New Deal was all top down, is that he actually empowered working people. And that's what was significant, truly significant about his presidency. In fact, I think there's something that marked his speechifying, his fireside chats, all of that stuff, that I think Bernie understood. And I think there are few politicians today who do, and I just want to go on record as saying, I think that Nina Turner knows this. That is that a really progressive candidate or politician doesn't tell you they want to fight for you. They, what they try to do is they try to inspire the fight in you. They try to engage your, if you like, deep cultural memory, your deep American aspirations, articulate that in a way that you understand that the fight is not about electing someone and standing back, but rather fighting to get them elected and then fighting with them to get things done. And the reason I say Bernie was like that is for all of his, the other things I could say critically about him, and I won't go there right now, I love the guy. The fact is that when he coined that hashtag, not me, us, and everyone thought it was a kind of good, good deed Christian kind of thing, they're missing the point if they did. What it really was about is this. It isn't just a matter of getting us, getting me and my comrades elected. You've got to be there to push those who might obstruct what we want and push me to make sure I don't become inert. So the not me, us was really about making sure that I keep my promises and we make sure that everyone else understands the promises that we've made and that they must be enacted. Now, what about today? What, where, where are we after, after all of these decades since the FDR years? Where are we after 45 years, let's be blunt about it, of class war from above on the rights of workers, the rights of women, and the rights of people of color, most especially African-Americans, most especially regarding now the right to vote? Okay, let's be clear. Where are we after 45 years? Well, it, things can seem very bleak, especially here we are talking at the very same time that if a missile goes astray, we could end up in a world war that would be the end of all wars as it would end the planet. I mean, this seems like very dark and bleak times. But we are at a very interesting moment. And this, okay, we're at a moment in which the progressive cause or social democratic cause is stronger now in Congress than it's ever been. However small the squad and their friends are relative to the overall sizes of Congress. We have folks around the country in states like Delaware with Kerry. Here in Wisconsin, my own state representative, Christina Shelton, has been part of an effort to advance, I'm proud to say with some of my, of my mentoring, a Wisconsin Economic Justice Bill of Rights that I can actually imagine the Democratic caucuses down in Madison embracing. I have people around the country who are, who are either in state houses or running for the state house who, who actually believe that this economic bill of rights is a very, not radical, but a most reasonable thing to pursue. But here's the thing. We are, and I, that's why Kerry's, Kerry's words are so inspiring, we are so seemingly divided. Okay, by the standard social divisions of religion and, and race, ethnicity, um, gender and gender identity, all of these things, right? And, and the powers that be that wish to obstruct, they make damn good use of those very divisions to keep us from advancing. But it's also the case we have an opportunity. And the opportunity is that we all do share, as Kerry was pointing out, certain kinds of needs and aspirations. And I do want to say that I do think this Economic Bill of Rights, which if you don't mind, at some point, let's go over what th th that would entail. I think that's something that we can rally around because it speaks to all of our needs. In fact, I'll go further. I think that the Democratic Party, having for so long turned its back on working people, alienated vast numbers of voters who were so angry, and you've heard me say this before, Robert, were so angry with the Democratic Party, they wanted to punch the Democratic Party, 
by going out and voting for somebody who they would otherwise have had no affection for, Trump and the reactionaries. Okay, so how do you how do you how do you speak to those people? Well, you don't go begging them. Okay, you don't give them an agenda of things. You speak to them of what a small d democracy should be about and what progressivism can mean to them in their lives because they're suffering the same kinds of difficulties that all the rest of us are after all of these decades. Sorry, I've gone on, I've given a lecture, maybe even a speech, but I think I think we're actually at a very interesting moment. I think as, as bleak as things may seem at times, I mean, listen to Kerry. I mean, she challenged the, the, the senator, right? Carper, I believe is his yeah, that's name. That's right. Yeah. Right? And, and, and might well have won at some point. I mean, that was that possibility. And now she may very well, and I hope, knock on wood, and I, because I can't promise to vote for you, I'm not in Delaware. But, you know, I mean, we can make things happen. But to do that, now I'm going to use your words. We need to articulate more than an agenda. We also need to articulate a vision that people will hear as a promise to themselves. Yeah, I, it reminded me of a story that I just, we just discussed again with another historian who was here about um, a Philip Randolph in the March on Washington and, ha- and having Eleanor Roosevelt there to be able to organize, to lobby, um, and, and getting people in positions where politics will work. You know, it's not a, it's not about vote. Like you said, it's not about vote for me so I can go do the thing. We're trying to get people in political positions so that, uh, you know, we can convince people that a mass movement will address their not only, like as you said, not only their needs, but what what they think, what they think the, the what they think we can be. It sounds weird me saying it. I'm I'm stuttering over it because it's not my it's not my uh, sort of way that I go. But but this is why Carrie is uh, is so good at it uh, to be able to articulate not only the policy uh, but the policy in a way to make it a, a movement outside of even politics. I think. Um, but how about maybe um, you can go over some of the points in the 21st Century Bill of Rights that are in the piece, and I'd also like to hear Carrie sort of speak to some of those as well specifically, and how we can sort of relate those sort of grander ideas to a, a local level and stuff we can do locally to sort of realize some of those. Okay, well, I'll take them up one by one, and Carrie, don't hesitate to cut me off, okay, after I do any of them, or we can come back and address them collectively. So first, and these, are, these I will tell you, were standing on the shoulders of FDR's Economic Bill of Rights, also on the kinds of ideals that A. Philip Randolph proposed in the Freedom Budget, also the very stripped-down version of an Economic Bill of Rights that Bernie did have on his website, and a host of articles by folks that came out during these last several years that sort of led us to include some things we didn't originally consider. For example, well, not for example, but let me go through these. First, the right to a useful job that pays a living wage and to a voice in the workplace through a union and collective bargaining. Now, the right to a, to a, a useful job that pays a living wage was in FDR's Economic Bill of Rights. And... I'll make it clear that when he first signed a Recovery Act in 1933 into law, he actually said this may well include a minimum wage. It was the first federal minimum wage. But actually, he said, and this is, these are his words, slightly paraphrased, no company should be allowed to operate in the United States that does not pay a living wage. And the only reason he didn't have the, the, the right to a union in his first proposal for an economic bill of rights is he had already signed into law the national labor relations act which he believed would always operate effectively to place the federal government behind the aspirations of workers to organize and bargain collectively that has been taken apart repeatedly ever since 1947 in the taft hartley act and later later you know disasters yeah and i think this one relates to local stuff as well um, because there's been a groundswell of sort of uh, union organizing around the country. Um, we're going to talk about it in a few weeks. Um, but that, when, when, you, when you 
when you speak like that about organizing at their workplace, I think at a local level, that goes a long way into uh, sort of getting people excited about what they could do. Yeah, um, and, and the idea of a living wage, I mean, it's shocking to think, and now I'm talking to you two Delaware folks, shocking to think that we had a president who made big promises a year ago, just over a year ago, and yet the two senators from Delaware blocked a $15 an hour minimum wage. Can you imagine? I mean, even now it's even now it's unimaginable that any senator, any senator of the United States would say no to a $15 an hour minimum wage, which soon enough won't even be anywhere near a living wage to begin with. Okay. So, so that's to us is a fundamental right. And the second one, which is long overdue, the right to comprehensive quality health care. FDR's original ambition was that Social Security would, in 1935, include health care. And, and I do want to say that the reason it wasn't in there is that the American Medical Association and the Republicans, who themselves were a weak position, a weak position but allied with quite a few Southern Democrats who did not want to integrate hospitals, they blocked national health care. And let me also say, because we haven't mentioned it, is when FDR proposed his Economic Bill of Rights, he was proposing these rights, not because he had, you know, these feelings in his, in his heart and mind, but because the overwhelming majority of Americans revealed to him in polling that this is exactly what they wanted. They wanted a right to health care, a right to education as far as they might be able to pursue it, and and a right to housing and the kinds of things that go into the imperative of sustaining a family. This, is, this was there then, and it's in our minds today. So the right to comprehensive quality health care. I'm not even talking Medicare for all. I'm going to use a better term. Universal health care for all citizens and residents of the United States. Unfortunately, we don't hear the term universal health care. Why? Because Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton threw the term around and never actually meant it. So Bernie grabbed hold of the Medicare for all, I believe, as, as a concept. Third, the right to a complete cost-free public education and access to broadband internet. The broadband internet has never really been a part of these proposals for an economic bill of rights, but we know very well that to be effective culturally and politically and economically, people, whether they're in cities or in the countryside, rural areas must have access to broadband internet. Became all the more evident, obviously, during this pandemic. So we include the broadband internet access as, as fundamental and essential. My students, my former students who are out in the world now, especially the ones who live in central Wisconsin, out in the rural areas of Wisconsin and up north, know just how imperative it is for the Democratic Party and for progressives to learn how to speak to the needs and aspirations of not only city dwellers, but also folks in rural areas, okay? Fourth, the right to decent, safe, affordable housing. I mean, that, that should be a basic, basic right of every American. I mean, it, it hardly needs to be said that in too many cities, I mean, visit Southern California Go to L.A. and you'll, one can't help but be shocked at the city of Disneyland and the L.A. Dodgers and Hollywood has the most atrocious and horrific homeless situation. OK, yeah, I speak about it a lot on this because this is my and I guess because it's as you said, it's it's it horrifies the, the conscience and and we have we have uh you know our we have our own problems here with not being able to house people or get them to places that are safe and also get them the the medical need, the medical services they need um and i think that that um that's starting to resonate with people but affordable housing and homelessness um i mean i i know uh Caria, i know it's also been on an uptick in dover for many years uh has there been any sort of uh any sort of traction with anything you're doing there on on the uh, housing issue? No, we're uh, hoping for it. You know, there's been a big push for a number of years to have a um, a, a tiny home uh, village put up. A lot of pushback uh, from 
affluent um, members of society. Um, it is a it is a major issue, and it's interesting because they regarding my campaign, a uh, member of the Dover City Council reached out to me saying, "Look, I've I've had these concerns. We have we have." not enough rental units here and the rental units we do have are too expensive and um th again speaking about the concern of homelessness and saying there's nothing i can do at the the city level it needs to be done at the state level but nobody's listening right and and so we we need to um be aware of so many people at different levels of government want to make a change but one either don't know how or don't have the resources and we don't have um, our elected officials working together, there's this still this, what I consider to be a, um, a broken system of we don't interfere in each other's work. Well, when we don't interfere in the work of municipalities, county, state, or federal levels, we don't interact, then we miss the mark and people fall through the cracks. Funding falls through the cracks. Individuals fall through the cracks. Systems break. And, um, and we see it very, it's, you know, uh, in organizing spaces, we love to have visuals, right? And um, die-ins and, you know, um, I know there's a thing with Manchin with people in their kayaks by his yacht. Those are great visuals. But the reality is we don't have to create a visual when it comes to homelessness, right? They're in front of us. We see their tents. We see them sleeping on on the streets, um, in cold weather, on part, on benches. We see the benches being disturbed so that they can't lay out fully so that there is no place to keep them off of the, the cement ground. And um, we can't turn away any longer. And, um, and so I think homelessness um, is something that is going to be beating on our doors more and more because uh, our children are going to ask questions. We are going to ask questions and, uh, you can't keep saying, shaking your head no to the person asking for some assistance uh, at every stoplight. Yeah, I mean, you hit on a thing, too. It's a, it's, a, it's a financial thing, too, where, you know, our systems are, are everything's piecemeal and we get, you know, federal dollars through COVID, for example, and we did something great in Newcastle County. But, you know, that's sort of like looked at as a temporary fix rather than something we should be uh, aspiring to, to, to that and more than that. You know, we should be putting those everywhere. Um, really, I don't. I, 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 uh, Harvey, I don't know if we talked about this, but s some of the uh, relief funds in Newcastle County went to buying a uh, an empty hotel and putting um, uh, unhoused people in the hotel, but also putting uh, a lot of social services and uh, and medical and health uh, stuff in the hotel. Um, so it's sort of a center where everybody can go. And, and again, it, I, I think it's been you know a, a small scale success in this in this area. Uh, but again, it, it it's sort of the it's always always painted as like this sort of emergency measure that we got emergency funds for. That's a temporary sort of stopgap. And I'm saying, well, why don't we just build 10 of them? <laughs> you know, let's figure out how to that should be. I mean, the, the, the fact that we don't know how to how to do it yet shouldn't uh, stop us from at least saying that that was a good idea and we should do it more often. Yeah. OK, number five, the right to a clean environment and a secure planet. Now, a secure planet, well, what do we mean? We mean that if we don't act now, we won't have a chance to act later. And if we have any intention of providing for later generations, we better act now. But there's something else I want to say, because I'll never forget, this might have been 25 or 30 years ago, I had a student in a class of mine, a young black woman from Milwaukee, who said, and I said to her, what are you going to major in? And she said, well, she, she was going to major in environmental studies and in the program that I was a part of that came to be called democracy and justice studies. So, wow, that's a great, great combination. What do you want to do? And she goes, I want to fight environmental injustice. And she explained to the class that when people talked about the environment, the natural response was to think about the pollution that threatened national parks you know, that kind of stuff. And people don't realize the number of neighborhoods in cities and even in rural areas that are built upon utterly, utterly atrocious dumps, okay? And are cancer-causing, you know, uh, lands. So, you know, she was talking about environmental injustice both in city, town, and, and, in, and in country, in fact. So clean environment and a secure planet. And the one contributes to the other, but obviously the action in favor of a secure planet is going to have to be 
on a national and global scale, okay, period. The right, six, the right to a meaningful endowment of resources at birth and a secure retirement. Now, this is important. The secure retirement means a far better social security and enhanced social security. But I tell people, the reason we included a meaningful endowment of resources at birth is not only because of the utterly ridiculous gilded age maldistribution of wealth in this country, okay, and the degree to which there is a racial bias built into that at the same time. It's also, if you go very right back to the beginnings in the 1790s, when Thomas Paine, as you know, Robert, my hero, Thomas Paine, when he proposed a social security program in the 1790s, he didn't say just for older folks so they wouldn't have to work. He's, he included the idea of payments to young people to give them a start in life, to buy a house, to get an education, to own some land, what, to set up in a business. So we thought, you want to combat poverty and ultimately inequality? Give every child at birth a meaningful endowment that will build and enable him or her to move on and to make something of themselves, of their generation, and of the nation. Okay? Well, let me just interject here one thing, because I said it before, and I'm going to say it again uh, on this one. We just did it with relief funds. Of course, we had the child tax credits that rather than making them tax credits, we just sent money to parents. And uh, child poverty uh, was markedly reduced. And when you stop doing that, it goes back up. So it's not complicated. We have a, we have a model for this kind of stuff um, to keep people secure, and, and we, don't, uh, we don't pursue it. Call me never satisfied. But I remember a year ago when they said, well, if we do this child tax credit, 50% of children in poverty will be lifted out of poverty. And I said, am I allowed to use a four-letter word? You absolutely are. We encourage it. I said, what the fuck? If you can do it for 50 percent, why can't you just do it for the entire generation? I mean, I, I, I mean right. I mean, the mind boggles. Yeah. How could even how could someone even say in public? Well, look, we're going to live 50 by way of a piece of legislation. We're going to live 50 percent of kids out of poverty and not think to themselves. Oh, my God. I just said something that left the other half in poverty. Sorry, I, that pisses me off like you can't believe yeah. it, okay? Yep. <laughs> Just, and now to think it only to think it ran out, how's that for a kick in the teeth? Yeah, now we don't even get that. Yeah, the, the, the little bit that we got and left other kids uh, poor, uh, we don't even have that anymore. So, yeah, that's why I'm, I, I, I do have you on and I have carry on to try to get me sort of optimistic and, and wound up because otherwise I'll get very down. Well, let me just add one other thing. How is it possible that the Democrats who were fearful of, feared the idea of Medicare for all, couldn't bring themselves to at least say, we are going to enact Medicare for all kids. Straight out, no child will ever be denied health care. Why couldn't they begin there? They kept saying, well, we'll reduce the, the Medicare age to 55 or something like that. I said, what? What about the kids? How could this be, right? Sorry, I, I, I'm revved up now. I'm sorry. I, I'm just... <laughs> Okay, number seven, the right to sound banking and financial services. Apparently, and this this I'm not personally familiar with, but apparently you go out to parts of rural Wisconsin, I'm sure this is true all across the nation, maybe into certain, in many an urban area, where banking services are just not available. And we have to make sure they become available, whether it, it may even just start by having postal banking at the outset and build upon that. And finally, eight, and this one, there's a, a humorous sidebar to this one. The right to recreation and participation in public life. Now, there's nothing funny about a right to recreation and participation in public life. But when, I, when we were on a, a, a Florida podcast YouTube thing the other day, the, the, the people on the, on the show said, first thing they thought of when they saw right to recreation is they said, legalize it, you know, re recreational marijuana, period. Recreational weed. And that's I, a good and we, start. That's a good start. Okay. And I said, well, that's not what we had in our minds when we did that. Here's the thing. FDR in 44 called for a right to recreation. In fact, the commission that he created in the 1930s that first was developing an economic bill of rights for him to present to the nation, they actually said a right to adventure. 
And my friend Nina Turner loved it. She saw, said, yes, every child at least should have the right to adventure. Okay. The right to recreation. It's not unrelated to the original struggles of the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s. The labor movement, you know, eight hours of work, eight hours of rest, eight hours for what we will, right? And the participation in public life, that's to say that everyone should be enabled to participate in public life, whether it's political public life or cultural public life. And, and I want to say there's one little thing that could start this ball rolling. Turn Election Day into a national holiday. Yeah. I mean, that's been... But, uh, again, this is one of the things that... Um, kind of gives the game away because, uh, you know, people who, and, and uh, as I said before, I'm sympathetic to the critique about electoral politics. I'm sympathetic to the critique about faction and party and money and elections and all of that. But, you know, the, the fact that reactionaries are trying to, you know, roll back the Voting Rights Act, uh, try to, you know, they will not make, uh, they will not make Election Day a federal holiday, uh, they they seem to think that it's important because they don't want anybody to do it. Um, so yeah, I'm. I, I didn't realize until I, I guess this Supreme Court going after the Voting Rights Act was what sort of piqued my my interest in in, in the idea that um, you know we could go we could actually go backwards pretty significantly if we don't um, stay on top of things like that. Yeah. So those are the eight. We didn't see these as finite. But we didn't want to get carried away in a long list, and we tried to keep them crisp. You know, admittedly, some of them involve more than a singular right. The idea was to get things moving. And we really, I mean, I know progressive Democrats are demanding that any candidate, I only know of the progressive Democrats at the national level. I know there are state chapters. Um, it'd be nice to see chapter, a chapter really emerge in, in Delaware as well. But the point is that they believe that they can't endorse any candidate. I hope I'm not misrepresenting them right now. They can't endorse any candidate who is not prepared to embrace that economic bill of rights. And I did, I'm going to tell you a little funny story here. So last week, I decided I was going to test out the economic bill of rights with the four candidates seeking the nomination for the Democratic no, sorry, the Democratic nomination to, for Senate uh, to run against Ron Johnson. Oh, your buddy. So I so I tweeted it to the four, to all four of them, and I said, "Who's the most progressive? Who's who's going to endorse or embrace this Economic Bill of Rights?" So far, one has endorsed it and and warmly in, endorsed it. Uh, Tom Nelson, who's running, I had hopes that we might see. Mandela Barnes, the current lieutenant governor, do so, or Alex Lassery, who has a very progressive um, uh, platform he's running on on his website. But so far, only one of them has done so. But we'll see. Maybe maybe we can get more to do so. Yeah, I mean, it's a big challenge because, um, you know, I would I would assume your standard pol establishment politician, like a lieutenant governor, wouldn't, uh, you know, these are these are extremely aspirational um, you know, people sort of get scared away from them. Um, but I think, as we've talked about today, this is the only real way to organize people together to get any of this, is to be aspirational. Really. If Alan was here, I'm going to tell you what he would say, okay? He would say, Roosevelt proposed, and the industrial, industrialized nations of Europe and East Asia turned it to reality. These are the kind of things that became very much a part of the social democratic politics and policies of those countries. And yet it was a set of ideals and aspirations that emanated from the United States. Talk about, do you remember, do you remember um, Michael Moore's film, Where to, Where to Invade Next? I do remember the film, yeah. Yeah, well, he, everyone heard, who saw that film thought, see, the Europeans are doing all these things and 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 we're not doing them. But the the baseline for what Moore was doing is that most of what these European countries were doing was operationalizing ideas that were generated in this country. So 
that's a, that's the, the like not the tragedy. It is a tragedy, but it's the irony of the 21st century, perhaps. And so, yeah. you know, it's not like. In fact, I'll tell you, Tom Nelson, the one candidate who has endorsed this here in Wisconsin for the running for Senate, he said on Twitter, he goes, sure, I'll embrace this. It should be commonsensical. I mean, housing, right? Education, yeah. right? Healthcare. What kind of Democrat would oppose those aspirations? So, yeah. So, Carrie, uh, last word from you. I just... Um, have you been able to get out um, and get the campaign going? I know the weather hasn't been super. Uh, we're just coming out of COVID sort of the last few weeks. Um, so I don't know how much you've been able to do out and about in your district. Um, but I'm excited because I know you're always in your district anyway. Um, you've been working with um, the school board in Dover. You've been working with the city council in Dover uh, and doing all sorts of advocacy in Kenton, Sussex County. Um so maybe you can talk about how you're sort of transitioning that um, into uh, your campaign and how it's going. Yeah, um, so not as much as I'd, I'd like to be as far as campaign specific. Luckily, my work keeps me definitely engaged in the area. Um, but with the weather changing, that would be nice. Phone calls definitely going out, emails, um, and you know, trying to reach people as best I can that way. Lit drops just to let people know, hey, you know, I'm coming. Uh, to a door near you, but um, I just, I'm most looking forward to um, daylight savings being my way to be able to connect with longer hours going into the day uh, and, and talking to people at the doors. Um, and so very excited. I have to do the pitch. If, if you guys would like to donate or learn more, carryfordelaware.com. Uh, carry is spelled K-E-R-R-I. And um if you have any questions or anything, please um, reach out. I do want to just kind of do a quick follow-up, and I, and I don't know how much time is available, but one of the areas we really have problems with as uh, Democrats is messaging, right? And, and, and we fall victim to trying to um, counter um, arguments versus stay ahead of arguments, stay ahead of, of the game. And, and what I want to say specifically about the Economic Bill of Rights is um, we were told for a long time that education was the great equalizer, right? Um, black women, you know, took that bait, hook, line, and sinker uh, and are the number one uh, demographic for college education, right? So if you talk about a BA, a MA, a PhD at the end of somebody's name, black women in the United States of America have the most. They also are straddled with the most student loan debt. I say that to say it is not the great equalizer. A strong economy is the great equalizer in our nation. And uh, in the same way that you will see by way of Black women um, and the failure of student loans, you will see by way of Black women the rise. If you have a strong economy, Black women will rise. I always say Black women are the tide of America when... Um, there's the saying that, you know, all boats rise with the tide. Black women are the tide. Everyone else is the ship or the people in the ship. And, and so you will see that growth and, and, and recognize it. Um, I also want to go and further to say that the Economic Bill of Rights um, is morally sound. It's just some things are just the right thing to do, right? Um, and folks who are not moved by their moral compass should know that this is fiscally responsible. I once was asked um, about universal health care. I know, Carrie, you're really a big supporter of universal health care, but aren't you worried that the state of Delaware would uh, become bankrupt under it? The truth is the state of Delaware can't have a universal health care system in, by itself, right? We're not big enough to do it. And um, our dynamics will not allow for it on our own. We need the entire nation on board. But if we do not pass some type of universal health care system, Delaware will begin to bankrupt. We only have two insurance companies currently, and we could lose more. And that gives them the power, not the people, not the consumer of healthcare. Also, the health disparities in our state and our nation are so great that if we don't start tackling them, it will bankrupt us. And that goes into education, that goes into the types of jobs, that goes into repairing our, um, our soils. All of these things are, are fiscally responsible stewardships of our nation and our economy. I, I wanna also go forward to say anyone who says 
All of these do not feed into our national defense. I am here to tell you as a veteran, I have seen how when countries do not have all of these measures taken care of, it allows for terrorism. It allows for other countries to come in and take over. It is a national defense issue, and we need to attack it in that way. Further, we need to let stop these far-right extremists from taking over this idea of patriotism. There is nothing more patriotic than taking care of, of your fellow American, making sure we're all doing well. One of the most beautiful pieces about the American spirit is all of the things that divide us go out the window when there is something major happening, a natural disaster, an attack on our soil. We come together, race, religion, economic barriers go out the window and we help each other up. That is patriotism. That is the American spirit. And that is ours. And we should not allow folks who think that division saying it's them, not us, um, should be able to take that. And when we take it, we need to understand that this is our road to realizing the ideals that our country was founded on but never realized. It falls in this economic bill of rights. And because of that, we can wave that flag proudly. The flag that, again, was stolen by far right. So some of us cringe now when we see it, when in reality, we should be standing proud to say we will make sure we take care of each other. We will realize the ideals that we have yet to realize, but will realize because we take these on. And so um, messaging is important. It is no, no candidate, no uh, elected official, no American should shy away from saying, let's do the right thing. Embrace these, these what should be in our Bill of Rights just by birthright um, and say, Let's move forward, be stronger, and show the world what it really means um, to create an economy that works for everybody. <laughs> You're getting applause from from Harvey. Yeah, I mean that's beautifully put. Um, uh, FDR himself, in the part of the speech I read, said that when these types of things break down and break down seriously, it's just a recipe for disaster and dictatorship. Um, it's, it's not, you know, the, the, the best thing we can do for our, for our own, uh, for our own country is be good stewards of our resources. You know, don't let our resources get taken away and, and, and exploited for capital. Take good, uh, care of our neighbors, make sure they're housed, uh, and, and, you know, make sure they have health care. Um, yeah, if, if you can ground yourself, you know, in, in, in this idea, I think, um, we 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 do have a bright future if we can just get through the next year, eighteen months. Um, Carrie, thank you so much. Um, we're going to link to all of your campaign stuff um, in the show notes. I think the great news is um, you're coming out of the out of the blocks with you know just so much recognition of the stuff that you've done in the community, um, the advocacy you've done, um, the people that you've worked with. And, and so I'm just incredibly excited um, for this next step for you. So I, I, I couldn't be I couldn't be happier about it. Um, Thank you so much. And, um, I, I appreciate your support in the past and the present. And I know going on to the future and um, and I look forward to seeing many people on the trail again. CarrieEvelynHarris.com to donate, sign up to volunteer, whatever it is that you can do to help push this campaign. And then um, I have to echo what Harvey said, and I said it in my run in 2018, and I'm going to say it now. Um, voting is not enough. Even if you vote in the best candidate, they need you there to help push the agenda. There has to be an inside-out strategy. There has to be that ongoing push because those who want to work against us are waiting for us to tire and not continue on. I have this this present I got for my recent birthday, and it's an old cassette tape, and it says, um, pause if you must, but never stop. <laughs> Some We will always get tired, so take a moment, breathe, but come back. They're waiting for us to stop. We cannot stop, um, and so I encourage you, please support me on my campaign, but once elected, because we will win due to people power, we need to continue to work once in office. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Carrie. I, I really appreciate you taking the time, and, and I want to thank know- you as well. If you don't mind, I'd like definitely want to thank you for being here. Um, I, I, I want to elect across the country. I want to elect people just like you. Oh, thank you, Harvey. Uh, it's, all it's, of you are listening, you give money, you turn out, <laughs> you make phone calls. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you, uh, just, just to give you some idea, I, I, I have met uh, Nina Turner in person one time. 
Uh, it was before the primary day. She came and spoke on Carrie's behalf uh, right here downtown, and I got a nice got a nice photo with her. Um, so yeah, all, all of this uh, stuff is connected. We're not going to stop, just like uh, Nina Turner hasn't stopped, just like Carrie hasn't stopped. Um, you know, Professor K, he's got a, he's got a, he's got his book coming out again. His 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 new his 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 first book's coming out again. So nobody's stopping with any of this. Um, once again, thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you, Carl, for hanging on. Uh, sorry about the technical difficulties, uh, but I, I, I love that you guys came together, and uh, I'll be speaking to you all soon. Uh, left is best, everyone.